millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Bonnie Garmus about her best-selling debut, Lessons in Chemistry. Bonnie is a copywriter and creative director who has worked in the fields of technology, medicine and education. She is an open-water swimmer, rower and mother to two daughters. Bonnie was born in California, but currently lives in London. In this episode, we discuss how a frustrating meeting at work inspired her trailblazing protagonist, Elizabeth Zott. Breaking the so-called writing rules and her 98 rejections before her success. But first, here's Bonnie with an excerpt from Lessons in Chemistry. Her lab mates assumed Elizabeth was dating Calvin Evans for one reason only, his fame. With Calvin in her back pocket, she was untouchable. But the reason was much simpler. Because I love him, she would have said if someone had asked but no one asked. It was the same for him. Had anyone asked him, Calvin would have said Elizabeth Zott was what he treasured most in the world, and not because she was pretty and not because she was smart, but because she loved him and he loved her with a certain kind of fullness, of conviction, of faith that underscored their devotion to each other. They were more than friends, more than confidants, more than allies, and more than lovers. If relationships are a puzzle, then theirs was solved from the get-go, as if someone had shook out the box and watched from above, as each separate piece landed exactly right, slipping one into the other, fully interlocked, into a picture that made perfect sense. They made other couples sick. At night, after they made love, they'd always lie in the same position on their backs, his legs slung over hers, her arm atop his thigh, his head tipped down towards hers, and they would talk, sometimes about their challenges, other times about their futures, always about their work. Despite their post-coital fatigue, their conversations often lasted long into the early morning hours, and whenever it was about a certain finding or formula, eventually, invariably, one of them would finally have to get up and take a few notes. While some couples' togetherness tends to affect their work in a negative way, it was just the opposite for Elizabeth and Calvin. They were working even when they weren't working, fueling each other's creativity and inventiveness with a new point of view. And while the scientific community would later marvel at their productivity, they probably would have marveled even more had they realized most of it was done naked. Hi, Bonnie. It's lovely to have you on the podcast with me today to talk to you about your debut novel, Lessons in Chemistry. Oh, thank you, Chloe. It's so nice to be here. Could you start by giving us a little plot description of what Lessons in Chemistry is about? Sure. Um, It's about a woman named Elizabeth Zott, a chemist in the late 50s, early 1960s, who loses her job because she's pregnant. Um, And she very reluctantly takes a different job later on and she becomes the host of a TV cooking show. But instead of reading the cue cards like she's supposed to do, she takes matters into her own hands and she decides to teach the women at home chemistry. And that may sound a little bit weird, but what she was trying to do was not only teach them chemistry, but to remind them that every time you cook, you are a chemist. It is a serious science. And that was her way of making housewives 
around the entire nation take themselves more seriously. So in essence, the novel is really a novel about personal empowerment. Mm, yeah, I was going to say she's a she's a, definitely a figure of inspiration and empowerment for the women at home watching. I yeah. read that uh, Elizabeth started life as a, a character in a different project you were working on, which you then decided to shelve. So I was wondering what, what it was about this novel that kind of made her come alive again. And do you think that she was almost waiting for this other project? You know, I think she was wait. Yeah, I think she was waiting. I think she was lying in wait. Um, <laughs> she um, she she was a really minor character in a different book that I had shelved, just as you'd said. Um, and I'd had a really bad day at work one day, and um, I'd just been in a meeting with some incredibly blatant sexism. And when I went back to my desk and started to work, instead of working, um, I felt like Elizabeth Zott was suddenly sitting there with me, and she was like. Oh, I've had a much worse day than you have. And she, it was, I felt like she was saying, tell my story. And so I did right then. I wrote the first lesson of chapter, uh, the, the first chapter of lessons in chemistry. But to be honest, I didn't know what her story was. So it was an exploration the entire way through, except for the end. I kind of, I saw, I saw that. I saw the very beginning. I saw the very end. It was the middle part of 398 other pages that I was worried about. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, did you find yourself kind of writing to work out what the story was going to be about? Or did you have, as you, as you went along, did you kind of come up with more of a plan? I don't ever write with a plan, um, which is strange to say as a copywriter, most copywriters write from an outline. You have to show outlines to clients. I never did. Um, and it's just the way I think my brain works, which, you know, I'm not saying is a good thing. But um, I think that for me, I like to try to go through, down through different alleyways and streets and see what's down there. And it might be a dead end, but I would hate to never not explore an idea that I had. So when I started writing Lessons in Chemistry and I wrote that first chapter, you know, I was just kind of making it up as I went. And I went, okay, she has a kid. Okay, she's sad. Okay, she has a TV cooking show. All right, here we go. Whose fault is it? <laughs> anyway, um, that's just kind of the way I work. So, so do you think that's how you'll always work, or do you think that now you now you've written this novel? I guess that that method works really well for some writers, but then there is a tendency to have to scrap so much of it because you're still trying yeah. to feel your way yeah. into the story. Do you think that yeah. will ever change, or do you think you'll always be doing that? Well, I've been a copywriter for 30 years and I don't think it's ever going to change. And it's, it's <laughs> funny because I, I've worked with some, you know, pretty high profile people and they, they literally begged me uh, when I was writing a speech or something, let me see an outline and I go, wrong writer, you know, I don't work that way. <laughs> um, and, you know, most people finally accepted that's just the way it works. So I don't think it's going to change. Um, do I wish it would change? Yeah, I would really like to write more straightforwardly, but whenever I've tried to make an outline, I will not follow it. It's like I have a little brain tantrum and I go, no, I'm not <laughs> going to use any of that now. So, so really it's just what I find is that I have to let the characters walk on and then allow them to talk and then I can figure it out. Mm. Yeah. I, I think some writers find the, the fun of the process is in the, in the working out and letting, letting your, your story wander off where it needs to and, raining it back in afterwards sometimes I think exactly um, I'm, I'm much more of a planner myself um so I get nervous of having no idea where it's going but then I mean even if you plan you end up wandering off track so I suppose it's the same sort of thing I think so you know although I do I do so admire planners and there are a lot of excellent excellent writers who do plan it all out and I you know maybe when I get even older I'll become a planner but I, <laughs> it's not happening yet oh well there's an amazing um sent couple of sentences near the end of the book which I think really summarize the themes of the novel and I just wanted to read them out to you now it says chemistry has changed and changes the core of your belief system which is good because that's what we need more of people who refuse to step accept the status quo who aren't afraid to take on the unacceptable so Elizabeth is a very much a woman ahead of her time. She's a feminist. She's quite controversial in the, the world that she lives in. And she feels incredibly modern. Did she evolve as a character because you were kind of trying to 
push against that status quo yourself you said you mentioned you had a, a, a kind of difficult meeting at work and, and she kind of her voice is at the back of your head so were you trying to kind of raise this like feminist voice and pushing against the status quo when you were writing her character absolutely and you know when i when i started writing her i put her in the 60s specifically because I wanted personal reassurance that we had actually made progress and had moved forward. Because, you know, after that meeting, I went, you know, what a waste of time we wasted in that meeting while this guy had to pretend that, you know, his ideas were actually his original ideas and they were not, they were stolen. Um, and I just thought, you know, well, that was another hour wasted of my life. How many of these hours have women all over the world had? Uh, too many. But I also said it then because uh, that's when my mom was a mom and I wanted a chance to look back and see what kind of limits she had been living under. Mm -hmm. And to be frank, I was just shocked. I really hadn't understood how limited the choices were for women back then. You know, you could not be pregnant and work. That was a fireable offense. And I didn't know this. My mom could not sign her own checks. My dad had to co-sign whatever checks she wrote. So they were very, very limited um, in terms of, of, of income and freedom and choice. And um, really, you know, there were very few career options for women back mm. then. And it was, it was pretty tough to think about all the women who never got to achieve anything beyond changing diapers. And there's nothing wrong with staying at home and raising a family. There is something wrong if that's what you're told. That's, what you're, that's the only thing you're good at. Mm. And Elizabeth is so ambitious, isn't she? That it's frustrating. Yeah. It's almost frustrating as a reader to to see how she's held back when. And even though she does try and push against it, there are still barriers in her way, and people that just kind of are astounded by her behaviour because they can't yeah. believe she's trying to do the things that she wants to do, and that she's you know yeah. she's an incredibly bright woman, and yet, like you yeah. said, she's she's um, she's fired the moment she gets pregnant, and. Uh, yeah. you know that that's it's like you say it's almost unbelievable to 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 know that was the truth of the times yeah I just you know so again I just really want to remind myself that we actually have made good progress mm. we still have a lot of progress to be made but um yeah we've made we've made some <laughs> so that's good so <sighs> which fictional women or even women from real life were inspiring to you when you were writing did you have any kind of reference points or women you kept going back to when you were writing Elizabeth well you know I I, I tend never to write about anyone in real life there are consequences for writing about people you know or even people that you you kind of think you know um, and so Elizabeth is, is really just an invention but I will say that when I was a kid, I really, really looked up to Jane Goodall and I really looked up to Margaret Mead. And those were two women that were, you know, that were, well, they were both, they were, <laughs> well, they were both scientists, but they were both so independent and they were so certain of what they were doing and they made such a big impact on the world. Um, and so I kind of kept those two in my, in the back of my mind. Um, but they're not really Elizabeth because Elizabeth is trying to change things for all women. She's trying mm. to get respect for all women across the board. Yeah, she's very unique in that way. You, <laughs> I haven't come across a, a character of that time that's anything like her. So she's very kind of refreshing character to read at that time. Um, <laughs> we've, off camera, we've spoken already about the love story between Elizabeth and Calvin. So I just wanted to speak a little bit um, about their love story to you now, really, yeah. because... Elizabeth describes them as soulmates and that really comes across. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how their relationship developed while you were writing. How did you kind of come up with this like lovely relationship that they have? Well, when I was, when I was working on it, when I was working on Calvin, especially, I realized that he was a very lonely, lonely man, but you know, he had all this attribution. He was close to winning Nobel prizes all the time. He had his own lab. You know, he was untouchable. He was this bright man. And, you know, basically he was a smart white man and um, he had a lot of privilege. And even though he had a very unprivileged background, um, but of course everyone assumed that he came from wealth or whatever. 
And I wanted him to be misunderstood in that way. But I also wanted him to meet a woman who he recognized was on his level and had none of the attribution that he had um, simply because she was a woman. And so I wanted him to fall in love with her mind, which is what he does. He, he finally has someone he can talk to. And that's a very big deal. Um, I think we're all like that when we, we really all want someone that we can be ourselves with and talk to. And he'd never been able to be himself with anyone. And Elizabeth was unable to be herself with anyone. And I, I kind of think that that's, that's very common still today that you know we're all kind of searching for that. But love is quite chemical. And there's kind of a, not really a recipe, but there's a little bit of a formula for true love that does involve chemistry and it involves, you know, obviously the lust hormones of, of estrogen and testosterone, but it goes way beyond that when you get into things like attachment and which is, you know, and someone you feel you want to be with that's dopamine. And as you get further into attachment and you feel like you're comfortable with this person, you're safe with that person, your brain produces um, vasopressin. So, so these are actual chemicals that do happen. And if you're missing one of them, it's probably not true love. <laughs> well, I think we can, I think we can definitely say that Calvin and Elizabeth, um, is true love. I think we can just confirm yeah. that right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so even though lessons in chemistry is a very uplifting kind of joyful novel, it does deal with some pretty serious and sad topics as well. Um, mm -hmm. But the wit is something that I think comes shining through. And um, I really think it, to me, it really reminds me of the work of Catherine Heine. And mm -hmm. uh, I've heard other writers say that being funny on the page is actually a very challenging thing to do. So I was wondering mm -hmm. whether you find that it almost comes out naturally when you write, or is that something you really have to work at? I think... I think humor is something you have to work at. It, it has to be very, very sharp and it has to be very brief. Most people, when they try to write humor, sometimes they kind of overdo it. I do too. So I've been there. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, as a copywriter, you have to write memorably every time. You have to write short almost every time. And that can really help you hone humor. Um, when I was working for a lot of executives and they wanted to give, talks, I, I would always say, you have to, you have to be able to make fun of yourself. Mm. And they some of them would look at me like, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm perfect. Um, <laughs> but the, the fact is, is that I think most of uh, my feeling about humor is uh, self deprecating, you have to be, you can't take yourself that seriously. Um, when you write, I think it's really important to remember that your reader could be doing a million other things right now but they've taken the time to spend time with you. And I mm -hmm. always feel it's important to entertain your reader. It's also really important to send them messages. And um, at least I, I think so um, without being didactic. But I, I really do think if someone has, has taken the time to spend all this time with you, you owe it to them to be at least somewhat entertaining. Um, it doesn't mean you have to be humorous. It just means you have to be telling a great story. So I guess that's what I would say. And, you know, I got to say, I delete a lot. A lot of what I've written is not witty. So, <laughs> you know, it's, you've got to be, you know, what I think Hemingway said, you've got to have a shit detector. And I have a pretty sharp shit detector. <laughs> these days. <laughs> Do you find it's those passages that maybe are the things that you're most brutal with, with your editing or critical of when you're reading it? And if it doesn't kind of, if it doesn't amuse you when you're, when you're reading it back, when you're doing one of your edits, are you very quick to go, no, it's, I'm cutting it? Oh, I, I cut like mad. I rewrite everything like mad. I, I think that's where the real story is. And that's where the craft is. You know, I'm not one of those people who write a whole first draft and then go back. I labor um, paragraph to paragraph because right. for me, it has to transition, 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 transition. Mm. Um, I, I can't, man, I could never, I, I know all these people who can write a first draft and then they go back. Oh my God. Another way. I wish I was more like other people, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's just not me either. Um, I think the transition for me, be, just even between sometimes sentences, but also between paragraphs, that is, 
that is key to the tone and the voice, the rhythm of the book. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> I, I really, I, I really understand that actually, because I'm very similar. I know people that just say, it doesn't matter what you write, just get those words down and finish a draft. And I, I can't do it. I'm the same as you. If I know that, <laughs> if I know that chapter seven is terrible, I can't just carry on with chapter eight. I have to, I have to make chapter seven. I know, you know, we all know that that, that first draft is not going to be amazing, whatever you are going to have to edit yeah. it, but I, I'm the same as you. I, I can't move on. I can't continue. <laughs> But like you say, it's very, little... de- it's very detrimental to your, to your, the speed of your writing process. Yeah. I know. I, you know, I, I do employ this one little device where sometimes if I have a problematic sentence or, or a paragraph, and I'm just not making any progress on it, I put it in a different color. I always put it in red, like this, this is this, <laughs> this sucks. And then yeah. I, I move past it and then I can come back later and try to unsuck it. But um mm. That's the only way sometimes you have to force yourself to move forward. But, uh, you know, again, a whole novel. I salute the people who can do that. That's not <laughs> me. So how many years do you reckon you were working on Lessons in Chemistry then? Do you remember when you started yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, I remember. Um, I, it took me about five years to write it. Um, you know, I was working full time. And um, I... <laughs> You know, I, I just can't believe people also who have children at home and write and get novels done. Like, well, I couldn't do that. Um, so, yeah, I it took me about five years. And hopefully now that I've quit my day job, um, maybe I'll get a little faster or maybe I won't. I don't know. Maybe it'll give me too much time to <laughs> muse over every paragraph. <laughs> that would be horrible. But yeah, <laughs> anyway. But yeah, about five years. Wow. OK. Yeah, I think. Uh... Uh, as well when you when you're writing that first novel you do have in a way kind of infinite time and then once you've yeah. written that first book things change after that so maybe you will find that your process changes a little bit <laughs> yes I'm sure I'm sure you're right so one thing I found really interesting and unusual about your novel is the point of view because it does sort of dip around and change and Elizabeth mm-hmm. is your central character, but in a really skillful way, you kind of switch perspective sometimes within a page even. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You tell us about what her colleagues are thinking, her neighbor, and even the dog gets looking. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah. this is quite, as I said, it's an unusual way of doing it. And I know that there'll be probably some courses that would be like, you can't switch perspectives or point of view. It is in a way, if you want to say breaking the rules, so what made you choose this, this method of writing from that perspective? Well, I mean, part of, me, part of it is just that I, I've always been a little bit of a rebel. So whenever I hear about a rule, oh, you can't have two points of view on one page, I go, oh, watch, watch. <laughs> um, uh, some, some rules are really good, though. I mean, one of my straight favorite books is Strunk and White. I sometimes just open it to remind myself that you can break some rules, but boy, you better be readable if you're going to mm-hmm. break those rules. So I really appreciate um, some form of rules, but you know, you have an imagination, use it. And the other thing is Elizabeth is a very transgressive, subversive character. And I wanted the writing to match that. So I wanted the, the structure of the novel and the tone of the novel, but also just this, this point of view, 10 different points of view to round her out. Mm. People, I gotta say, you know, people are gonna go, no, you can't do that. Well. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. <laughs> but you better you better prove that you can. Mm. So that was my challenge. That was my challenge the whole way through. I had to convince myself that this rule was meant to be broken and I could do it in honor of her. Mm. Did you know from the moment you started writing that's what you were going to do? Or is it something you kind of played with later? Um, as soon as uh, I think, I think, well, I had Elizabeth point of view. And then as soon as the next chapter opened, I realized what I really, my intent was to have all these different people commenting on her so we could see her as a fully rounded character Mm. because so many people offer their perspectives on, she can be, you know, very harsh. She can be flippant. She can be unlikable. She can be incredibly loving and she can be dangerous. You know, she can be all these things, but I needed all these people to, to, to show how it was that she, these mm. characteristics came out. So um, once I had 
three points of view, I went, hmm, I'm liking this. And then I did not know that the dog would have a point of view until he just suddenly said something. Mm. And I thought, oh boy, I'm going to get in trouble for that one. But I followed it for a while and I suddenly realized, no, I, he's probably the one I need the most. Mm. I read an interview with you and your editor, I think. And um, I think your editor was making you cut quite a lot of the dog's point of view points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is my agent, Felicity Bourne. Yeah, oh, she's the greatest agent. Yeah, mm. you know, she is, she's absolutely the greatest person ever. And yeah, you know, the great thing about having an agent is that they are trying to get you to produce the best story that you possibly can for the best market, the widest market, et cetera. And, you know, she was, she listened to me though. I said, I said, you know, I really think the dog is important for this and this and this reason. And I did cut a little bit of him. I will say that one of the chapters I cut of him, which is exclusively him, has now ended up in a Barnes and Noble special edition. Oh, so it ooh. came back yeah, um, <laughs> that's in the United States. Um, but yeah, you know, you want, at least I wanted an agent who, you don't want an agent who just likes everything you do. Mm. You want an agent who has ideas too. And, yeah. and, but then you can have a conversation with your agent and say, no, but you know, you have to defend your work. Mm. You have to be able to do that. And luckily I've had so much experience doing that at work that that kind of comes naturally to me. And I would say to any writer listening that we're all just people and it's all very subjective. If you feel super strongly about something in your novel or your, your book, don't change it. If you think it should be in there, Mm. you you have a, you have a gut feeling about a follow-up, but do respect these other people's opinions. And I, I really respect Felicity because she's very well read and she really understands the market. And I can't say enough good about her, but yeah, Mm. we argued about that one. And (laughs) I think we both kind of had a draw and it was great. I mean, that that's probably the best kind of outcome you can possibly have. Mm. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, it's good to get into these discussions with your agent or your editor. And it, if you're trying to justify why you're keeping it, that, that makes your argument stronger. And then, you know, some at some point you can convince them that that's the right decision to make. So, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I want to speak a little bit about your setting of the 1960s. You mentioned that it was the mm-hmm. um, era where your mother um, was a mother at that point, And you were yeah. interested in, in looking back at this time and seeing how things were different. So I was wondering it has a real kind of nostalgic kind of kitsch really fun feel to yeah. the time apart from obviously all the sexism that uh, Elizabeth faces so yeah. <laughs> what were you doing to kind of inspire yourself to write about that era were you watching tv obviously the the the, the book is set around a, a tv show were you watching were you dipping into tv and film of that era to inspire you no um i watched so much tv as a kid i'm probably filled to the brim with old TV shows. So, you know, my favorite TV shows when I was growing up were, were Bewitched and uh, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, uh, Gilligan's Island. And um, I love this show called Get Smart. So I had a really good idea of how these shows were produced and what they were like. And um, to be honest, uh, I've watched very few cooking shows because I don't really like to cook, which I know is very odd to have a, a character who is such a good cook and treats it so seriously. Um, I actually do treat cooking seriously. I know I'm bad at it. So I'm so seriously bad at it that I let others do it. I I do cook, you know, dinner, but um, Mm -hmm. it's not something that I'm, I'm good at or that I enjoy. So when I sat down to write it, I, I actually just remembered those TV sets where they had game shows and stuff. What's my line? I could see what it looked like. And I just wrote that. Mm. And what kind of research were you doing to, to make sure you were accurate with the time period? <laughs> um, really none. I mean, I, you know, I did, oh, I did so much research into the chemistry because I'm not a chemist either, mm. but that I had to nail as best I could. Uh, I bought a textbook off of um, eBay, a 1950s, 1955 or 57 chemistry textbook and I had to teach myself mm. chemistry but the chemistry could not go beyond 1963 course, yeah and yeah oh my god um, that <laughs> adds a whole layer of complication to learning chemistry doesn't it I know you know and I thought this whole time I wasn't a great student of chemistry when in high school or anything um I mean I passed but it was never an interest of mine but you know reading a textbook from that period of time they're written they're written differently and I actually found myself, I'm surprised to say, enjoying what I was reading, enjoying what I was learning. And I thought, how, how did I get to be this age and not really know how the world worked? The world is entirely chemistry. Mm. And it's really good now that I, I have the basics down um, of how things actually work. So I did a lot of research in that area. I didn't do that much research on the TV show. And it's interesting because um, I've had... You know, now people in Hollywood saying the same thing, which show you must have watched mm. all these shows. And I said, I didn't. And this one guy I talked to uh, said, man, I, he said, I mean, you really got the entire set. You know, you really got the whole thing. And I said, well, you know, like I said, I steeped myself in, <laughs> in, in television when I was a kid, I read and I watched, you know, Bewitched. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that uh, I have to bring up, because I think it is an interest of yours and it does crop up in the book, is rowing. So can you tell me yes. like, why, why that features in the novel and, and how you kind of brought your, your love of rowing into the, the novel's narrative? Well, rowing is in there for two important reasons. The first is I did not have to research that. <laughs> and so after learning chemistry, I didn't want to take on, you know, some other some other thing that I need to research. Um, but rowing actually is a metaphor in the book. Uh, rowing requires incredible cooperation and communication. You don't have a successful boat with a lot of people who don't get along. A, mm. a successful boat, people don't talk, but you can feel what they're doing in the boat. And, and so 
instead of trying to stand out, what you try to do is fit in. You try to be at one with everybody in the boat. That's how a boat moves. That's the best way you can move a boat is to respect each other in the boat. So I wanted there to be a um, the tension between Elizabeth at her job where no one is cooperating with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no commonality. There's no respect. And with the opposite in rowing, which requires that to move forward. And so that's why if science is not moving forward, it could be because there's not enough cooperation. There's not enough honesty amongst the scientists or whatever. Or, you know, they're, they may be very busy still keeping certain people out of science. And since the book has been out, well, actually, even during the arc period of time, um, I've heard from a legion of women scientists saying, I hate to report this, but this is how my lab is today in 2022. And that was really shocking to me. Mm. Um, But in rowing, and I've rowed in a lot of co-ed boats, um, you know, you get in that boat and you really have to, you really have to cooperate. And so that was my, my metaphor for that. Mm. I wanted those two tensions that they needed to be opposites. Yeah, that works really well. One of the things I read recently in an interview with you was that you said the worst part of writing is basically when you're stuck, nothing's coming and you feel quite defeated by it. So when that happens, what do you do to try and push past that point? Well, I usually try to um, take a walk or go away. I I do a lot of erging um, and sometimes erging really helps. I think it I have this idea that now that I've learned some chemistry, it helps to move your molecules around. They just get flattened or something sitting all Mm. day. Um, I also, you know, eat snacks or something. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I just, I just get away from it. I go clean the bathroom. Um, I'll do something that is not necessary for me to do just to kind of change my, take my mind off of it, but I can tell my mind is still processing it. Mm. And I do get stuck, but I, you know, I took this online course at Curtis Brown that Anna Davis teaches, and it's called Right to the End of Your Novel. And at that point, I had not been able to write to the end of this novel. I was getting close, but I was still not done. So I thought, wow, my, 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 tri- my, my daughter actually sent me this link. She goes, mom, finish, fin- finish your book. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm going to sign up for this course. And I took it. Anna Davis was amazing. But, you know, she had this great piece of advice that no one had ever said to me before. She said, when you're stuck, make something happen. And I went, oh, uh, well, that's it. All I have to do is make something happen. And um, all that is, is inserting, you know, action into a scene right there. You bring people together and watch, watch what they do. I don't know. It was like a revelation to me. (laughs) So thanks to Anna Davis. I managed to write two more chapters and then I was sort of getting home free there. I didn't finish my book in mm-hmm. her online class, um, nor did I finish my book in the three month in-person class I took where we met once a week. Um, but I wrote another chapter in that course, you know, it's just sort of pushing yourself along. And then after that, I knew, I knew I was where I was going mostly and I could see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And I just had to get down the tunnel. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. I was wondering how did you've mentioned the Curtis Brown courses that you took. How did mm-hmm. you feel that they, apart from the amazing advice that you got, how did they, I guess, uh, help you shape the novel really? Well, I guess I wouldn't say they helped me shape the novel because I'm, I'm horrible with structure and uh, I think, you know, that that's where I have to police myself. You don't really read very much of anyone's work in a course like that. You might read a thousand words or 2000 mm. words. You know, my novel is 110,000 words. Um, so, but what it was for me was being in a room or being online with a lot of other frustrated writers and, you know, just sort of trying to get through this morass of imagination and creativity and hard work. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who aren't writers who go, you know, 
I could write a book. You just want to <laughs> tell them all, you know, because yeah. they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, it's really, really hard. And mm. I, I can't tell you how many people in my life have said, oh, yeah, you know, if I had a spare moment, I'd, you know, I'd write a murder mystery. You know, mm. they, I, I could never write a murder mystery. That kind of structure is beyond me. And placing all those, you know, hair, red herrings and everywhere along the path, that's really, really treacherous work. Um, so being in the room with other people who are always kind of, um, I mean, really great people, all of them were great. Being in the room with them just makes you feel like you're not going insane. Mm. You know, where we could sit and say, how was your week? I, I wrote 50 words and we go, yay, <laughs> you know, because we all understood. Yeah. And um, so I think that community of writers is, can be very, very helpful. Mm. Sometimes, isn't it, having that kind of accountability partner or group that makes you think, oh, I really don't feel like writing, but I've got to, I've got to write because everyone in the group's writing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we would be, you know, we, we each had a time where we had to submit a chapter uh, and, or, you know, a piece of a chapter and it was going to be reviewed. And it was so funny. We all had the same kind of, oh God, on the night that we were each going mm. to be up for review, because it's terrifying. You know, you want to say to everyone at the beginning, I really actually write so much better than this, but <laughs> I'm just putting this out there right now. Um, it's nice to be with other people who are suffering. Um, mm. And it's, it's nice to have their support and know that they know what this is actually like. I uh, was speaking to a friend the other day who I met on a Faber Academy course similar to the Curtis Brown. And I said the, the times where we had to submit work, it was the time where I was like, I'm going to have to write something so good because I don't want to hear any criticism. And of course you do, <laughs> but it's a nice motivator. <laughs> you know, it's so true. I know, you know, I think for me also, it's very difficult. Uh, uh, luckily as a copywriter, I've gotten feedback for a billion years now and I'm, I'm pretty good at taking it. But what you really have to become good at is ignoring probably 85% of what you hear because your classmates are seeing this much of your book and they, yeah. they may not understand yet what the themes are that you're developing. Mm. They're going to go, I don't know where this is going, but I don't like it. Well, you need to ignore, you need to have serious confidence when you're writing and you need to make sure you don't let anyone sit on your shoulder while you're writing. Mm. You just really need to have confidence and believe in yourself as you go along and convince yourself that it's good right until it's good and then you'll be okay but it is kind of hard you know sit there and have someone go well you know I don't I don't like this about her and you go you don't even know her yet yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah. but it's fair it's fair for them to say that so mm. yeah I I, I hear you I was wondering now whether you could speak a little bit about how you got your agent and then how that turned into a book deal because I think it's quite a it can be a very confusing process or, and it can happen in a number of different ways. So I was wondering what your journey was to publication. Oh, well, my journey was the, the, the usual Rocky Road version of, I'd written another book that, that I, I really loved and it was the one right before Lessons in Chemistry. Um, it's quite long. It's, um, yeah, it's almost 700 pages, but okay, that's long. Anyway, I sent it out. Um, queried it 98 times, got 98 rejections. Wow. And um, yeah, and you know what? It's really hard. I think every writer knows how that feels and writing those awful query letters. Mm. I mean, you just want to, it's between that and the, and the synopsis. I don't know which one is worse, <laughs> but they're just, they're, they're, they're soul slayers. I mean, it's mm. just horrible. Um, and you're really giving that agent or that agent's assistant you know, five minutes to determine if they're going to move forward with you or not, or even take a look. It's, it has to be bulletproof. Obviously mine was not. Um, but I was told over and over again, we would never consider a book of this length. Mm. So we're not going to read it. Um, not from a debut author. And then finally, number 98, I got a reply from a woman who said, okay, you know what? I I liked your query. So I read the first 5,000 words and I love the voice and I love the whole thing, but I'm not going to read it because you don't get to write a novel of this length. And I, boy, that was really hard to hear. And that's mm -hmm. the day I quit sending it out. Um, 
And I felt really pretty terrible for months and months. And I was kicking myself at being so naive, having written such a long novel. But you know what? I took her advice and I decided, no, you know, somebody was brave enough to say, who do you think you are? And I wrote a different novel, a shorter novel, and that is Lessons in Chemistry. Um, but she did say at the end of her note, she, the, 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 the note was pretty bad, to be honest, the email was. But she said, if you ever write anything else, I'll take a look at it. So do send it to me. But I did not have to because at the Curtis Brown course, uh, at the very end, they have a cocktail party for the students and some of the agents come. And unbelievably, Felicity Blunt took me aside and said, I love what I've read. I love Elizabeth Lott. And a few months later, she signed me on a partial. I never had to query. Also, she told me she never reads synopses anyway. And I was like, great. <laughs> so so uh, um, anyway, that's how it happened for me. Tons mm-hmm. of rejection. And then just a super great evening one evening when she said, I want to see the rest of this. And I, I want to. And then she ended up signing me before I finished. How did you cope after all those rejections? Was there a point where you just thought, this is not going to work. I can't do it. Or did you always have that faith? Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm a total quitter. I, um, I, I did just stop writing for a little bit. You know, I think you have to kind of let yourself feel that kind of rejection and hurt and give yourself time to get over it. And don't, but in the back of your head, if you're really a writer, you're not really going to give up. Mm. You're going to, because you have stories to tell. And, and um, I really hope anybody who's kind of feeling like, forget it, you know, it's impossible to break in because I really understand how that must feel that just think of taking a break as a, a, just, you're just refueling. And then when you're ready, push all the negative rejections aside, get them off your shoulder and sit down and write your book and write the story that you want to read, write something that you would love to pick up in a bookstore yourself and you'll write it. You'll do it. Mm. Normally at this point, I ask my interviewees their top three tips for other writers, but I think you've given us an incredible amount of tips already to this podcast. So I'm not (laughs) going to ask you to give any more, but what I will ask is, can you think of any novels that you can compare lessons in chemistry to? I think often when we're pitching our novels or when we're trying to write that dreaded synopsis, we're trying to think of comparison titles. So what are your comparison titles for lessons in chemistry? Well, um, I have been a bit of a rebel about comparisons. I think what I've tried to do with Elizabeth Zott is create somebody that you haven't seen before. And, uh, and so the book has been compared to various things. It's been compared to Where'd You Go, Bernadette, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, The Queen's Gambit. All of those pieces are wonderful on their own, but they're not Elizabeth Zott. She's different. Mm-hmm. And all of those are different. So I... I'm the kind of person who shies away from comparison. If you're trying to write somebody who's incomparable, you can't compare her to another book. The other thing is, I feel like it is, it's just wrong to say, oh yeah, it's like, where'd you go, Bernadette? I think Maria Simple is a genius. It's like saying, oh yeah, I'm a genius, just like Maria (laughs) Simple. I'm not, you know, I think she's amazing. So I I really, really shy away from comparison. Mm. And finally, are you able to tell us about what you're writing next? <laughs> um, you know, I'm really, I'm really shy about talking about that. Mm. And the reason is because if you discovered, uh, I have no idea where it's going. It's embarrassing <laughs> to say, I don't know what I'm writing. But uh, the, the truth is I'm, I'm going down a million, a million mm. little mole holes and I'm enjoying my time in the Warren down there. Um, but there are a lot of dead ends and it's just the way I work and I have to be gentle with myself and not kick myself. However, um, I'm the kind of writer who works great under pressure. So, you know, I shouldn't say this out loud, but if Felicity said to me tomorrow, I need it by Friday, I'd probably finish it. Uh, I'm kidding. I would never be able to do that, but you know, do put some pressure on yourself because I know my book taking five years to write, Mm. you know, I can say, okay, I was working full time and I'm working as a writer. And the last thing you want to come do come come you know you come home oh good I'm gonna write again Mm. but actually pressure is really important so if you can set yourself some time pressure or put yourself in a course where 
you're committing to writing to the end of your novel, which I did not mm. do. Um, these sorts of things are really necessary for a writer. And, you know, we need to feel like, like there's a constructive timeline out there for those of us who are always swimming against the current or, you know, I don't know, daydreaming or whatever. <laughs> Pre- pressure's, pressure's a good thing. Anxiety actually is a super, mm. super power for writers, I think. It gives you a lot to write about and think about. Well, I hope you have uh, luck with trying to find your piece of gold through all your little journeys of writing <laughs> and come yeah, up with something me too. incredible after your fantastic novel Lessons in Chemistry. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bonnie. Oh, thank you, Chloe. It's just been a pleasure. That was Bonnie Garmus talking about her best-selling debut, Lessons in Chemistry, which is out now and available to buy. Before I go, let me just tell you about two events I've got coming up where I'm hosting this podcast, Confessions of a Debut Novelist, live. First, I'm going to be talking to three authors at the Being a Writer Festival, hosted by the Literary Consultancy on June the 28th. Then on July the 22nd, I'm going to be talking to Louise Morrish about her historical novel at Jericho Writers Summer Festival. Both of these events are virtual, so you can join anywhere in the world and even ask questions. And if you're interested in hearing me talking in person about my novel, The Sea Women, I'll be at the Margate Bookie on Thursday the 2nd of June. Tickets for all these events are available to buy and I'll put all the details in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.